New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For centuries and possibly millennia, humans have pondered their place in the grand cosmic order of things. If we had the opportunity to speak to our younger self, what would we say? What wisdom could we give to that younger self about what is the meaning and purpose of life? What does our experience tell us about why we are here and who we are? Today we'll be exploring these questions and why they may be important to our lives with our guest, philosopher Jacob Needleman. Jacob Needleman is a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University and former director of the Center for the Study of New Religions at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He has also served as a research associate at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. His many books include What is God? Necessary Wisdom, An Unknown World Notes on the Meaning of the Earth, and I Am Not I. Join us for the next hour as we explore how the questions we are asking are reflected in the way we live our lives with our guest, Dr. Jacob Needleman. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jerry, welcome. Well, so good to be here again. Thank you. It's grand to have you. You've sat across from many of our hosts. You yes. Phil Cousineau recently and and Michael Toms, course, my, Michael. my late partner, and now here we are. Here we are. Uh, I... I in this new book, it's a bit of a departure. It it really is a theatrical yeah. treatise on on conversations from the octogenarian Jacob Needleman Ooh. to the oh <laughs> to the younger like teenage uh, yes. Jerry Needleman. So tell us, what do you hope that this will arouse in us by reading such a, a conversation? Well, I started sitting down to write this book. I was one of the main motivations was years and years of seeing my students at the university groping, searching. They come to the they come to philosophy classes. Some of them come just to take get the credits, but many of them come because somewhere in their hearts they're searching for meaning in a very deep way, or but not. But the culture around us, around them, the ideas that are circulating about life, 
the universe, human humanity, good and evil, God, all that. It are some of them are very I found very toxic, very like more like a prison of that prevents them from opening up their the heart of the mind into these great questions of that philosophy is really originally meant to confront the questions of the meaning of our life and the, our life in the in a living universe and our relationship to nature our relationship to our own self and the the, the ideas that were in their minds mostly seem to hold back uh, any movement toward transcendence toward spiritual searching and I wanted to write something to at least give them because when I'm teaching I and I start opening up these kind of what I console consider the great ideas of the you know eternal ancient traditions of search and spirituality and metaphysics I see the their eyes open their their mind opens you can tell something's taking place in them that they don't they haven't seen in themselves some part of themselves is waking up is being respected is being addressed and it brings them a kind of hope just the, the hope of having something in ourself which can face the great questions maybe even answer them so it was originally felt I would do that 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 way that would be my book then um, practically as I sat down to start the first sentence I realized I was speaking to a young person I wanted to speak to a young searching person and who do I know better than myself and suddenly 14 year old Jerry in this case appeared almost like uh, you know, magic calling out to me and that was that suddenly was my form I would write about a kind of dialogue a script dialogue between myself Jacob whom I call Jacob which is my grown-up name to Jerry which was my name as and still is my name uh, informal name but and we would have a talk together and so I started that there was a young person myself and I started writing to him as he might ask the questions and search for the questions and what he would say and I sort of I sort of thought of him as about not yet really born uh, that was also just discovered as I was writing that Jerry was going to be born again it would be me but born again and and in another and the next life whatever repeating in some sense this life what questions would he ask and what would I respond and it was tremendously dramatic for me and it, it started going like that and I, I I addressed him I heard myself asking these questions I responded it turned into a drama and then as it went on I realized this is not just for jury and not just for young people younger you mean by younger adults it's for everyone anyone who is searching but then I was in conversation with the world at that point I was reminded as I started to delve into this how we we often say to ourselves, oh, I wish I knew then what I know now about 
such yes. and such, whatever it might be. And so the, the, these are kind of comments that we make to ourselves towards our younger self. Oh, I wish I had known that before. Yeah, yeah. that comes out in the book where younger Jerry at one point says to Jacob, because uh, he waited, we're, we're talking in the context of being born again, being coming into being, young Jerry is not yet born. His, he's appearing. His possibility is there, speaking for the, in the for pointing toward the future. And I'm, we're, I'm, we're speaking about ideas. We're speaking about facts, and we're speaking about our life and his life, which is going to be somewhat of a repetition of of mine, and but not entirely. And that's an interesting point. And at one point, Jerry says. Will I remember everything you were telling me when I'm born? Because we speak about great ideas and very, very essential things. And I, I found myself, I really didn't know what I was going to say. And I realized, no, that you, what you will remember is the sound. And he said, is that all? I said, and I, Jacob says, if you recognize and know the sound of truth, Everything else will be added to you. Without that sound, without the taste, without the feeling of truth, you won't, even all the ideas in the world won't help you. That's so beautiful, too, because it's not like the the words or the intellectualization and all the concepts that we take down, like if we're taking a class and we write down what our professor has said yeah. about this or that, or we read Camus, whatever, yeah. and we write down all of that. It's not about that. You're no. talking about a flavor exactly. that, that stays with us. That's right. And that's a flavor many of us have. We don't know what to call it. We don't know it's there. But when we hear something or see someone of a certain in a, of a certain kind in a certain way, we're drawn, we're magnetized toward it. We don't know what it is exactly. Jerry, I'm wondering, um, why do some people like gravitate to these sorts of questions? And it, it, these are questions that we might have asked when we were younger. Of we might have been looking up at the night sky and wondering, yeah, who is God and why am I here and, and what is it all about? And then some of us, then as we get older, those questions recede and life takes over and, and it's about relationship and earning a living and it's all of that. But uh, some of us, then <laughs> that question continues to radiate in the foreground of our life. What? Why is one one way and another another? It's one of my questions. It's a great, great question. It's really the one of the most important questions anybody can ask. And the way I would see that, and there's many aspects to this, those questions and the feeling that goes with those questions, which is not just mental. It's in the heart, these questions. It's in the feeling. Why am I here? What, what are we supposed to do? Why, why is there evil? You know, the question, why, is, is there any life after death? These are, they're, they come from a fundamental part of human nature that is what a human being is. When a human being is born, what, what distinguishes a human being from the rest of the creation, as far as we can tell. Yeah, that there is a part of ourself 
in the mind that functions as in a form of adaptation to the immediate environment around us. In that part, gives us able to function, to talk, to make money, to have family, to do things, to create, to make uh, relationships, to, to be developed, educate the mind. Uh, that's that's one part of ourselves. It relates to the earth and the life around the earth. There's another part that you could say, maybe speaking not entirely symbolically, but another part of the human nature is given from above, is from the stars, let's say, from the whole from the whole of the universe. Call it God if you want, but it's a part that is open, connected. And it's a, to something higher, and that's a, that's a separate part of ourselves that makes a, that plus the other part, the first part, which deals with the the environment around us, which Gurdjieff calls the personality, and this other part which is connected to the universe, is Gurdjieff calls the essence, and the essence. These are questions that come from the essence of something in us that. We, we we are born with. So we, when children are the most obvious case where they're asking and wondering and they're in touch with these questions. We know that. Many times, mama, mama, dad, where, where did I come from? You know, what happens? Why do people kill each other, etc.? This, so this is the two natures of man. We are a two-natured being, unlike other creatures. And this is an expression of that. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Jacob Needleman. His most recent book is I Am Not I. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, jacobneedleman.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with Jacob Needleman, and we're talking about uh, our essence, uh, the essence of our human nature. Uh, and it, it, he, I want to remind our listeners that his most recent book is called "I Am Not I," but some of his other books are "What Is God," another book, "Necessary Wisdom," another one, "Unknown World Notes on the Meaning of the Earth." And many, many, many others. You can look them up online. They're just a fantastic. Uh, you've been very prolific. Uh, and Jerry, um, I'm thinking when when you're talking about looking at 
the nature, our essence. I'm, I'm thinking in the way that science has kind of depicted it, the, all the cosmos, it's been pretty much facts and it's been pretty much a, a kind of um, heartless accident, we might say, that the, the whole of the universe is a collection of facts and, and things like that, but, but that it doesn't really talk about consciousness or, or it gives much shrift to religion or higher thought or, or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, uh, God. Uh, so what would you say about that? There's a great history to this question. And, um, but putting it briefly, the culture we're living in discovered, started uh, in its essential nature uh, by discovering that um, certain questions, essential questions, like we just spoke about, about higher things, where there was not much um, certainty, the kind of certainty that was being offered was usually involved with something called faith, belief. And there was a movement started a few hundred years ago. To, what can we be certain about? What's, what's, where, what, what can we know? And there was not much interest in faith in that sense. It was certainty. And the, the movement was discovered that I can only be sure of things that I can perceive with the senses that I know, that I can touch and smell, and that, that was, reliant, was out there. And there was a kind of mathematics of logic of that kind, which could be put things in a, an order of logic that the, the mind, everyday mind that we have, and that could be developed, and with the combination of logic, mathematical thinking, logical thought, and the evidence of the senses, <clears throat> we could really not only know, know things a little more certainly because we experience them, but we could begin to predict the future. We could begin to predict things, and we could make changes out there in the world around us. We could um, manipulate the world. We could make inventions, technologies, that could solve, apparently solve immediate problems of health and, and, and um, survival issues and uh, physical issues and social, so maybe some social even issues or financial issues and the inventions of all kinds in all kinds of areas came from this part of the mind, which the, I was calling personality, which enables us to adapt to the immediate world we live in, the earth, we, the earth around us. And the questions of this, the metaphysical questions, the spiritual questions, the meaning questions, receded into the background. Well, that's just that's philosophy, that's metaphysics, that's speculation. It's interesting, it's good, but we want to know for sure. We, we, don't, we, we got problems to solve. We got things that have to be done. And it did this very, very well. It became technology, manipulation of nature was doing things that never was dreamt of as possible. That other cultures, other traditions looked backward, superstitious. They, they, they had the bad health. They, 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 they didn't couldn't accomplish. Look what we can do. We can fly. We can create new sources of energy. We can, we can invent automobiles. We can invent, you know, 
uh, jet planes. We can invent rocket ships. We can invent wonderful instruments for murdering people, like uh, hydrogen bombs. And we're fantastic. What we can do. Then it became a sense. This was we were really the, the civilization of progress. We we're much more ahead of any of those other cultures, which had much more of this spiritual, philosophical frame as at its heart. Where then we became basically a secular society. Really, those questions, the questions of the heart, receded far and far more into the background, and for a couple of hundred years, until we come now, where. De- depending on almost entirely on technology and the, the discoveries of the personality mind, the mind, the activity, we've come to the point where we realize, where are we going? What are we doing to ourselves? We're, we're coming close to manipulating nature and coming close to destroying nature, destroying the earth, destroying ourselves. We realize we, where do we make a wrong turn? A lot of us have come to that point. You know, I'm reminded when you're when you talk about this, I'm reminded of a study that was once done in Bali by MIT. And uh, the the computer scientists at MIT, they did a whole program uh, for the Balinese about a what they thought would be a better way for the farmers to distribute the water that that comes off the mountain. Apparently it kind of flows off the mountains and different farmers will open up their sluice boxes and allow the water to water their fields and then so much goes down. And they thought that they could do a better job and really be more efficient for these Balinese farmers. And uh, apparently it failed miserably (laughs) because the agreements that had been handed down from these farmers, from their ancestors, really going back generations and generations about how to distribute the water, worked much better than any computerized mm. uh, program. And I, it, it kind of goes along with what you're saying, that, that we, we, we think that we can do a better job in, in some ways than personal relationships or or then nature itself and its natural tendencies yeah. and uh, so i i'm 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 also thinking about the times that we're living in jerry are we're living in a very polarized time that it's either yes or no up or down you know either or and um, you are you are looking at it slightly differently. You're, we may not. Uh, I don't know. Are we making any progress with living in in a kind of polarity of yes or no, up or down? Can you comment on that? Well, Is there something else that we need to be looking at? Well, absolutely. It, for certain kinds of questions, yes or no is useful and. Necessary, uh, something which is a yes or no is kind of a mental, a logical, mental procedure, which is very useful in many practical ways and thinking ways. We'd be pretty lost without it. But that part of the mind is only the mind of personality, or the mind of the that part of the mind which is deals with the external, immediate environment of our life, then that can be very important, obviously. 
But it leaves out this other mind, the mind of the essence, the mind of the heart, you could say, which is the truth is accessed, not real truth, deep truth, is not accessed just by the the mental mind, by the by the personality mind, which is wants to fix something in a certain way. It doesn't take into account all these other aspects, which are only accessible by feeling. Because the way of farming, for example, may also sometimes, from ancient times, may include a wisdom that comes from the heart, from the being of the people who invented this thing. And that's why it's what it is. And on the, on, on the surface, it looks like, oh, they, they get, we can get better crops. We can have resist infection. We, we can take care of that. They couldn't. They didn't have our science. Well, they had something else that may have been working in a way much better than what we had, what we're going to do. What we're going to do is going to produce lots more crops. Oh, by the way, it, 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 it poisons us. Oh, by the way, it, people are dying of cancer. Oh, by the way, we're getting lots of food. We, we, we can't, we're, we're depleting the soil. Oh, we're encouraging insect swarms that never happened before. Oh, our solutions contain more problems than they solve sometimes. And so this is probably an example of that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have science, but we can, if we leave out the essence mind, the science all by itself is, will be robotic and will be bound to collapse. We're not here. It, it doesn't work to use just science. We have to, without science, without heart, can't, can't really improve all that it thinks it can do. And that's what we're seeing in our culture now. And so is there some source where we have to go back to? And that's a problem because how do you go back to that? It's what's, what's happening there is what's going on? How can, we can't reconstitute the past. We can't bring back all the... We all know what cultural conditions were there in the ancient times. We don't know... Them the meaning of all these traditions, because those traditions had much more meaning than were expressed in intellectual language. It, the meaning of the ancient traditions was expressed in, say, in something like farming, or in music, or in architecture, or in poetry, or in symbolic forms, one thing or another. We only know the ancient truths we only know are the ones that the mind can understand verbally. That's where we, we can't really sensibly see the meaning of the whole teaching. So we're in a real big fix now. Science can't save us completely anymore. We know that, some of us know that. And what can the traditions, how do we ever get to know what the traditions have to teach? We only know what they told us, but what they didn't tell us the whole story. And most of them are gone. So, oh, that's a dilemma now. Oh dear, <laughs> now now you prevent, uh, you presented us with the dilemma of there may be wisdom in some of these ancient traditions, and they go beyond just uh, normal philosophy of, exactly. of of Europe. I mean, you're exactly. talking about yeah. about going to India and China and yeah. Africa and South America. Yeah. I mean, all of these places have these. Yes, they do, but they don't know how to tell us about them anymore. But they don't know. We don't can't listen to them, and they can't talk to us. They can only talk to us in the form that the mind, an ordinary mind, can figure out. 
but all the rest of it, the music, the art, the diet, the, the, the everyday hygiene, the sexual practices, everything, all that is, they don't know even why they, why they do it anymore, many of them. It's, you know, we get very high spiritual ideas from ancient traditions, but the ideas alone cannot really change, transform us in this all the practical th aspects of the teaching are there to help us. Well, we'll talk more about how we can really solve this dilemma in just one moment. I'm hoping that you'll have some suggestions for us, Jerry. I'm speaking with Jerry Jacob Needleman. Both of us. Both, both Jerry Needleman and Jacob Needleman, his younger self and his now elder self. And uh, he's the author of his, his most recent book, I Am Not I. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jacob Needleman. He's a philosopher, and he is a and a teacher, a professor, uh, and, and a prolific writer. I just want to mention a couple of other books besides his most recent one, I Am Not I. Uh, he's also written um, The American Soul, which is relevant to these times right this moment that we're living in, this moment in history here, especially in the U.S., and also another book that he's written is Money and the Meaning of Life. That's also quite <laughs> relevant uh, to us right now. And uh, so what I'd like to, to, to go back to, because we've just talked about how there is ancient wisdom that's available, but not really meaningful totally to us yet because we don't understand the full context of yeah, this exactly. ancient wisdom. So, Jerry, what, what can you say about how can we winnow out the, uh, the wisdom in those traditions? How can we find the wisdom? I read a book called uh, years ago called Lost Christianity. And because I felt, from what I've understood, my searches and spiritual work, that there was this movement coming in our culture, particularly starting with California, as always, as usual, uh, of going, being sensitive to the mystical, spiritual traditions of India, say, and Japan, like Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and the, uh, India. And it was it started in California and eventually spread throughout the world, the world, the modern world, especially. About some people began to respect a little bit the ancient wisdom, which previously had been relegated to superstition, or they thought was. But the, the those ideas that came from the East to us, some of them were very attractive to the younger people, particularly, and that became a movement. And it went into kind. Of, sometimes it went too superficial. It was called new agey, but 
basically something was coming from a deeper culture into this modern culture that seemed to bring new hope. But the way it was coming in, anyhow, that's one thing. But my book about Christianity was based on the fact that even Christian teachings were beginning to look like it needed help. They needed help from Eastern, like Buddhism, for example. There were priests, monks, Christian teachers, well-known writers were beginning to, to look at Christianity. Where is our mystical, where is our higher knowledge? Judaism, Kabbalah, all that. And that was becoming, I said, now this is interesting to me as a writer, as a philosopher, and as a seeker myself. Lost Christianity was, what has Christianity lost in this wide culture we have? So I went in search of that. It turned out what I thought, what I discovered myself, in the, with the help of the Gurdjieff teaching, of course, what I discovered is that the ideas of, the great ideas of the East, some of them Buddhism and Hinduism, and the great teachings of the Christian tradition, faith, love, and so forth, were not making that difference in, to people's lives as it has been hoped. When we go to a church, many, and particularly with younger people, would go to church, would listen to priests, would listen to, to pastors, rabbis, and it didn't feed them like they felt being fed maybe by the Zen Buddhists and things like that. And so it became a crisis in Christianity where the, the really practical, mystical teaching of Christianity, where is it, what is it really? And what I discovered from what I was helped to discover was there was something called, what I call in my book, intermediate Christianity, which is in between the great uh, teachings of faith and love and mystical blending with God and entering into the mind of Christ and Christ living in one's life and living that life yourself. But how to do it, the practice, the details, the self-knowledge that was needed in order to actually not just appreciate great teachings, but actually to begin to be able practically to live them. That's what people were missing. And so I wrote a whole book, and I even had a figure, a wisdom figure appear in the book, bringing this hints of this intermediate Christianity, which would make the great teachings of Christian and the Jewish tradition too practical and not just something you love and believe in, and, but it doesn't really change your life. So that's where this intermediate thing, which is in between the greatness of a great saint and the ordinary persons like ourselves, who sinners or whatever we call ourselves, something in between, a bridge between the possibility and the actuality of human life. That was missing in the Christian, that was what was being searched for in the Christian tradition. And I, I think a person like Thomas Merton began, saw that and had that, and he was nourished by the Buddhist things of that sort. And there are other spiritual teachers in Judaism and Christianity who began to go in that direction. That's, that's in very short. We could, we could go a whole 10, 10 hours on this subject. Right, right. But, and then we can bring in all the other lots different of other reli religions besides Christianity. And you've mentioned several times now Gurdjieff. And uh, 
uh, I may not know a lot about him, but but it seems to me that he was a kind of bridge in some ways of Eastern and Western. He he kind of came from a, a, a place that actually physically was a crossroads exactly. of like the Silk Road of the East and the West and all of that. And yeah. he, he, what can you tell he us? He was a bridge. He discovered a bridge. He discovered there was a bridge. He, he called it a hidden knowledge that he saw that science was not going to help us in the long run because we might even destroy the world. He saw that. He foresaw that. No, we're talking that. about what year was he teaching, about what he year? He started his teaching in, in Russia at around 1912, uh-huh. 1913. He began that. So it's been a, a little more than 100 years since he started to bring it up. But he foresaw with amazing... Uh, accuracy, prescient, what this culture was headed for in a time when there was still the optimism of science and technology and all that kind of thing. He saw that it was going to lead to disaster because it just was the expression of the more superficial part of the human mind. There was something it was leaving out very essential, which he called being the development of being, but that if it doesn't give us an idea that doesn't even have, have any meaning for people in this culture. It's a kind of a, that humanity, what was happening, humanity was going farther and farther away from its possibility of evolving as a whole human being meant to be. It, it lost touch with it. it and nothing, nothing in science was going to change that because it was still coming from the same part of the mind that was creating all the things and then causing all the problems by the application of inventions and technology that came just from one part of the mind and didn't have the heart in it, didn't have the purpose in it. So, Jerry, what, what he may have been talking about or teaching about or giving the experience of is something that you mentioned earlier in this conversation. It was that taste. It was a taste of something. It wasn't so much the intellectual concept, but he was trying to convey something beyond was, the intellect. That was the beginning of it. Yeah, the beginning was the taste. The, 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 he wrote an extraordinary book that is has a kind of mythic quality about it, that if, if you read that book really with a certain need, it sort of enters into you like a myth, a great myth, a myth being an expression of the truth of the heart and the head together, and not just the head. So he, the book was called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, he, a very provocative title, but it's one of the great books of, of our time. Anyhow, it was the taste that he felt, because he spoke exactly of what we spoke of at the beginning, this part of ourselves that will re- resonate to truth without necessarily the permission of the intellect, you know, the mind, in the heart. So he was a bridge in that sense, but he was more of that. More, was more than the the ideas and the work and the expression of the book. He also provided a, a way of actually working at this, of living this kind of thing, which was the most remarkable thing about him. So he he sort of in, incarnated somebody who was trying to show mankind the middle, the, the, the intermediate way of great ideas 
actually becoming part of your life and transforming yourself, transforming your life. Uh, does that make sense to you? Oh, it does. It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, so, achieving it is another... Well, it's, it's another matter. But he was, I would say he was a bridge not just between East and West in the usual sense, but a bridge between the higher and the lower that was missing in our own personal life. Because we have this higher impulse in us. We've tasted in great moments, moments of wonder, moments of grief, moments of joy. We know this states of being which we are different people in these extraordinary states of presence we are like what we would wish to be we can love we can we we can judge we can, without hatred without any kind of ego without ego we know we can touch those things but we don't know Nobody tells us they can become part of our everyday life. Or so it's like sustaining that exactly. that 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 it's presence like, of of awe or wonder or or love. Love, especially love. Yes. Uh, sus- how we can sustain it even in That's the midst of daily life, which is complicated and complex and challenging and all absolutely, of that. Absolutely, absolutely. We have evidence of that every day. Yeah. In lost Christianity, I use the symbol of a love your neighbor, as the Christians tells us. Well, who can do that? We hardly can love. Well, love your enemy, even when we hardly can love our friends, or which, even love ourselves. Uh, more, most important, but it was like telling people in a room st- to get up and fly. And so they run around thinking, I'm going to fly. And some of them, they're all flapping their arms. <laughs> and some are f- saying, look, I'm flying, I'm flying. And others are feeling guilty because they know they're not flying. So it's a question of, you can't tell people to love your neighbor just like that. That's very, it needs a practice. It needs it a needs development, as you said. And William James is a wonderful writer about religion, when he spoke about mysticism, which he gave a lot of credit to what is called mysticism, unlike most modern philosophers. And uh, out out of what he said, the question became, is there really a method, a systematic cultivation of mystical truth? That's what we're speaking about. I'm here with... Dr. Jacob Needleman, philosopher and author of many, many books, including The American Soul, Money and the Meaning of Life, and his newest book, I Am Not I. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Jacob Needleman, and um, Jerry, I would like to talk about the process of listening. And, you know, uh, I I know that um, you have said the most therapeutic step we can take is a kind of listening. What did you mean by that? Well, of course, I have to refer to a book of mine, and then that's where I go into this very, as much as I can. It's a book you haven't mentioned, but one of my books called Why Can't We Be Good? And there I describe this work of listening when two people disagree with each other, as here we see so much nowadays, what's happening is nobody is listening to the other. And the work of listening, this exercise is, you know, you try to listen to the other person, and then you summarize what they said, and so forth and so on. And you can only, you have to go back and forth like that, but it's an exercise. The point is, listening is the first real step we can take of love. We are able to listen. We don't do it. Listening means to another person means you set aside your opinions, you set aside your mind, your ordinary thoughts, you become open, you let the other person in. You don't do anything more than let their mind into you. And that is possible. And when you begin to do that, and the other person responds in a similar way, when you begin to do that, something passes between people. Even when one person doesn't do it, when you are really being listened to, you feel something. You don't even know why, maybe, but you feel something. It's such a healing thing. So if I listen to you, I have fed you in a way that nothing else really can. So it's the first plank in the work of love is listening. That's what that whole, that's what that whole book about that I wrote was. So we don't practice that. It's practicable. One can do it, but it's very hard because it means for a few minutes you, you sacrifice your own opinion. You sacrifice your view. Mostly when people are listening, we're just waiting for a moment when we can come back and say our own point of view, our own, and refute our own. But no, the, the listening means you you let that your own viewpoint disappear for a while. Then maybe you can speak from from the heart to it. But that 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 is a work that can be done, and I, it, nobody's teaching it quite like yeah, that. Exactly. I last night I was with a group of people. There are about twenty five of us, and one of the persons in this group, she was full of despair in, in what was going on with her. And this was about an hour and a half we were together, and um, different people were giving her suggestions. I hadn't spoken at all in the whole hour and a half until towards the end when I was hearing all these people with all these suggestions wanting to be helpful out of a real goodness of their hearts. They really wanted to be helpful. And uh, finally, I, I spoke up and I just said to her, I said, I want you to know, I don't, I don't know how to fix you. I'm not even trying to do anything like that, but I want you to know, I hear you. I hear you deeply. And I saw such a look of relief on her face. And she sat, her whole countenance, uh, countenance just changed, and she just lit up. 
And she said, thank you. And it felt like a real sincere thank you. And that's what you're talking exactly. about, isn't it? It's that really that I mean, we out of the goodness of our heart, we want to help each other. We want to be of help. But sometimes that's not really the first step that's required in in our rela- re- relationships. It couldn't have been said better. That's absolutely right. It's so 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 obvious once you do it, once you see it. You know, if somebody calls you up at three o'clock in the morning or something, say, "I'm I really in despair. I was all suicide," and uh, help me. And you feel I can't help. What can I do? Can do? Well, you can go there and listen. So sometimes if you do that, you get up out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and you go see your dear friend, and all you can do is listen. Be there, present, listening. And then later on, that person says to you, you helped me so much. I said, what did I do? I didn't say anything. I said, you, you, you listened to me. That just reminds me, Jerry. I had that happen to me once where I was the one in despair, and uh, Michael and I were moving from San Francisco up to Mendocino County, and it was the day before the move was to happen, and this whole five-story building was cleared out, and everything was on the van, and my feet were sore from all the packing and moving and everything, and I called my friend Jody, who was up in Mendocino County, and he answered the phone. It was very, very late at night. And I just burst into tears, and I cried, and I cried. I couldn't even say what was going on with me, but I just cried into the phone. I mean, sobbing. And Jody was on the other end of that phone, and he listened to my sobbing. I mean, it probably went on for 10 or 15 minutes, and he just sat there on the other end of that phone and listened to my sobbing. And it was so... I, I, transforming to me. I mean, it was it, it was the most extraordinary moment. I mean, that I recall in my life that somebody was so willing to hear that depth of despair and not want to fix it or change it, but just be there with it. Oh, that's incredible! It's really it, it really beautiful. is, and that's what we want to learn for each other. That. This this step of this deep listening. I mean, therapy is good, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that kind of therapy. It's, but it, I love it. You have a phrase. You say, "Yeah, it teaches us to be um, normally neurotic." <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, that was one of Freud's great ideas. He says we've got to be neurotic like most normal people are. He also felt that too. Yes, yes. No, but that kind of therapy, that's where it helps. It helps us when we know we've been heard. It's not too much been fixed. The hearing, being heard itself, fixes something. It does, and it's like like a a magic wand, I must say. I mean, if, but it takes some attention on on our part to to be there. I mean, we have to take, we have to let go of all of the stuff going on inside of us that, that is fearful for that other person and all the things that come up, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. it's It's amazing what we have. That kind of attention can do miracles. It's extraordinary. When you listen like that, though, you do something else happens too sometimes, often, that you begin to hear, see something, listen to something in yourself at some capacity of 
if you want to call it love or some capacity of care, appears as you try that. When you try to not to not go with your reactions and your opinions and your arguments and your attempts to help, uh, when you that empty yourself like that, and deeper attention can appear toward the other person. And that deeper attention can appear in oneself. And you suddenly, after a while like that, you're listening from another part of yourself that you didn't know you had. So it's a, it's a healing, a two-way street, two-way street healing, street. isn't exactly, it? Exactly. So it really, it really does more than just help the other person. It's you're saying it's expanding, and putting us in touch with that that we were talking about yeah. earlier. That essence yeah. part of who we truly are. Yeah, that's very well. That, yes, very much so. I had this poem by Denise Levertov. You know who she is. I, I do. I. This is a poem by Denise Levertov, and its title is "A Gift." Just when you seem to yourself nothing but a flimsy web of questions, you are given the questions of others to hold in the emptiness of your hands. Songbird eggs that can still hatch if you keep them warm. Butterflies opening and closing themselves in your cupped palms, trusting you not to injure their scintillant fur their dust. You are given the questions of others as if they were answers to all you ask. Yes, perhaps this gift is your answer. Oh, is it, that's where poetry <laughs> yeah. speaks to that deep essence, doesn't it? It's yeah. not the intellect, but you get the image. You're talking about the myth of it. It tells more truth. I could read it again, but... But that... All right, let's read it again. Yeah, because Because sometimes we need to hear it twice. Because sometimes it takes that second time for it to deepen into our souls. Just when you seem to yourself nothing but a flimsy web of questions, you are given the questions of others to hold in the emptiness of your hands, songbird eggs that can still hatch if you keep them warm, butterflies opening and closing themselves in your cupped palms, trusting you not to injure their scintillant fur, their dust. You are given the questions of others as if they were answers to all you ask. Yes, perhaps this gift is your answer. Jerry, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. What a joy. What a joy it's been for me, too. I want to tell our listeners that I've been speaking with Jacob Needleman. He's a philosopher, author of many books, including The American Soul, Why Can't We Be Good?, Money and the Meaning of Life, as well as What is God, Necessary Wisdom, and his most recent, I Am Not I. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, jacobneedleman.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3581. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.